please turn with me to Romans chapter 14, verse 1, Romans 14, verse 1. We're going to start this morning with, uh, with a quiz. You don't have to turn in your score. Um, I just want you to think. So you're just going to sit there and think. Uh, I'm going to give you a series of um, statements, and I want you to think through, are the statements biblical or cultural? Are they black and white, that is, moral absolutes, or are they matters of conscience? Okay, so just think as we go through these. Christians should never drink alcohol. Is that biblical? Is it cultural? Is it black and white moral prohibition, or is it a matter of conscience? On the other hand, communion should always be served with wine. Christians should meet regularly for instruction, encouragement, and worship. Biblical or cultural? Christians should meet every week on Sunday before noon. (laughs) Christians should never listen to secular music. Christians should never get tattoos, of course, unless that's a a fish symbol. (laughs) Then Then it's okay. Christians should avoid every appearance of evil. Christians should never smoke. Ashtrays shouldn't be available in Christian homes for those who do smoke. Women should wear hats in church. Got a big problem here, that church. All Christian families should send their kids to public schools so they can be missionaries in public schools. All Christian families should teach their their kids at home to protect their kids from all the evils of the world until they're ready to be missionaries. What's wrong for one Christian is wrong for all. If that's not true, then we're slipping into moral relativism, right? Well... Clearly, there are biblical statements, things that are clear commandments in Scripture. They're black and white. And there are other issues that are actually matters of conscience. And godly people see those issues and they see them differently. And in fact, what we're going to observe in Romans chapter 14 is God actually guides and directs godly people to make different conclusions about these moral issues. So, what I want to look at this morning is uh, Romans 14. Specifically, what were the issues in Paul's day? Because they weren't fighting over homeschool or public school. Um, Didn't probably have a lot of conversation about tattoos. They talked about uh, three primary things that Paul's going to mention in Romans 14. First, on which days should Christians worship? Second, can a Christian in good conscience eat unclean food? And then third, can a Christian in good conscience drink unclean wine? Now, you can see where the first one came from because Jews worshipped on the Sabbath. God created six days. The seventh day he rested and he commanded his people, I want you to rest. He brought that commandment of rest into the very Ten Commandments. So Jews began to worship Friday evening. They stopped their normal activities. They they ceased to to Sabbath or Shabbat means to cease. Doesn't mean to lay down and take a nap, but to stop what you normally do and focus upon God, who he is, his provisions. That would last all the way through Friday night into Saturday. Saturday, as the sun went down, that would end. That was their worship period. Well, Christians early on in the history of the church began to worship on Sunday because that's the day of resurrection. Jesus rose on Sunday, and so Christians, some Jews and Gentiles, began to worship on Sunday. What's the right day? To worship on Sunday. Friday evening into Saturday, or should it be Sunday? Can a Christian in good conscience eat unclean food? Now, um, in the city of Rome, this may have had to do with food that was simply prepared in a non-kosher manner, an unclean manner. But what we see illustrated in Corinth 
was something a little more specific. See, pagan people would go to the temples, the idolatrous temples, and they would make an offering. Some of their meat offering would be burned up in fire. Some of it they would take home and eat. Some of it they might take to the marketplace and try and make a little money. So if you went to the marketplace and you purchased food for yourself, it might be meat that had already been offered to an idol. Or if you went to a non-Christian's home, they might put meat in front of you, and that meat might have been offered previously to an idol. Or you might go to the marketplace and purchase food that you want to bring to the Lord's Supper, and it might have previously been offered to an idol. And that created some conflict between Jews and Gentiles. Same issue was prevalent. Number three, can a Christian good conscience drink unclean wine? The issue was not to drink wine or not to drink wine, but the wine might have been poured out as a libation, an offering to an idol. And if that wine was purchased in the marketplace or served to you in a pagan home or you brought that wine to the Lord's Supper, that would create conflict between Jews and Gentiles. That was the, I would argue, the the primary practical theology issue of the day. How do people from, from differing cultural backgrounds, from different historical backgrounds, from different religious backgrounds, how do they come together as one people and worship together without driving each other crazy, without offending one another, without leading one another to violate their own consciences? Remember, in our setting, what Paul is talking about is after 11 chapters of theology, he then begins to talk about how we reflect our righteousness to the world. And specifically, in this large section, he is going to say we reflect it through unity, in the way that we love one another, specifically as we regard one another in these areas of, of conscience. They're not black and white. They're matters of conscience, and good people will disagree. How do we love one another well so that the world looks in and they see us unified and not making issues over things that are just matters of conscience? How do we do that as a church? A little later I'll give uh, some illustrations that pertain to, to us specifically, in our cultural context. But let's look for just a moment, specifically at the issues of unclean food. Can a Christian in good conscience eat unclean food? There were four possible responses in Paul's day. The first, absolutely not. (laughs) No. No, it's sin. Sin for me, and therefore it's sin for you. It's sin for everyone, because that meat may have been offered to an idol, therefore it is ritually unclean. That's a violation of the Mosaic law. You can't do it. Now remember, too, in Rome, probably the issue wasn't like in Galatia. These were most likely Jewish Christians, what Paul describes as the judgmental Christian, the one who is judging. They probably were not saying, if you eat meat, you are not saved. I remember in Galatia, the, the Galatian Judaizers, Jewish Christians, were adding to the gospel. They were saying, well, you know, if you don't keep certain ceremonial aspects of the law, if you don't get circumcised, therefore you are not justified. You need to believe and keep the law. And what does Paul say? He says, no way. May it never be. And he puts on the gloves. I mean, then he just goes to town on him. He says, let him be accursed. Man, he fights over the purity of the gospel. He's not reacting like that with these believers in Rome. Apparently, this is more an issue of cultural sensitivity. And specifically, these Jewish Christians, most likely, who are in the minority, are seeing the majority eating meat, and they are judging them. They're saying, you know, if you really were more spiritual, you'd give in to us. You'd obey the law. 
And you wouldn't participate in these things. And so they're judging. Second response is certainly yes, absolutely yes, of course. Essentially, this is Paul's position. We'll look at 1 Corinthians 8 in a few moments, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, he reminds us there actually is no such thing as an idol. I mean, there's an idol, there's a block of wood, but there's nothing behind the idol. It's, it's wood or it's stone, it's nothing. Therefore, something offered to it that's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything in reality, in its essence. So we all should be able to eat this meat. This is what Paul describes as the stronger Christian, that is, he has freedom of conscience to participate in this morally neutral issue. He's stronger, or as he will say in 1 Corinthians 8, this is the one who has knowledge. He knows there's no such thing as an idol. So he doesn't give it a second thought. The risk for the stronger Christian is that he becomes the condescending Christian. It's right for me, it should be right for you. What's your problem? If you were a little more mature, you'd have a bite of my pork. Come on, come on, what are you worried about? It's not that big a deal. And this Christian is looking down on the other Christian for his inability or his failure to participate. Third possible response, probably not, but unsure. This is what Paul describes as the weaker Christian. He, he, he sees the issue, but his conscience just won't release him. He says, you know, I, just, I, just can't, I just can't get there. Okay? Probably a Jew could be a Gentile, but probably a Jew who understands that, that there's a new covenant and it's setting aside the old covenant and I should be able to do these things, but boy, I haven't done it my entire life, you know, and I, I, I'm 60 years old and I've just believed in Jesus. I've just understood the gospel and this is just too hard a corner for me to turn. And this person seeing the stronger Christian partaking of the meat is sometimes tempted in violation of his conscience to eat meat. And then for him, it's sin. Another category is what I describe as the vulnerable Christian. This person might say, you know, I, I see that it's okay, and it's okay for you, but gosh, it just hurts me when you do it. Because of my history or my background, when you participate, it just grieves me. Paul describes this in chapter 14, verse 15. Then a fourth response, and this is really Paul's response. He would say, you know, it really it depends. Um, the law was nice in that it was really black and white on everything. But Paul says, in the new era in which we live, not everything is really that clear cut. It's not that black and white. This is the, the genuine, stronger believer. The stronger brother, the stronger Christian who can say, yes, I have freedom. There is no such thing as an idol I could eat but I don't have to eat. And so I'm going to look at what uh, most honors God with my life and what's best for you. And if I eat, great. If I don't eat, great. I don't care, one way or the other. Because I'm not living for myself. And Paul, in this discussion, is trying to move us all that direction. The fact is, on some areas, we're going to be the stronger Christian. On some areas, we're going to be the weaker. Sometimes we slip into being condescending toward others. We, We move. We're not monolithic, so to speak. None of us are the stronger, most mature on absolutely every issue. We've actually got to step back and constantly examine our conscience on these matters before God. So, what does Paul say? What is his advice? Uh, I want you to read with me, beginning in chapter 14 and verse 1. Paul writes, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, 
but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. When we bump up against one another, there are three possible responses. And Paul says, this is what I want you to do. I don't want you to look down on one another. I want you to lift one another up. And when you have a disagreement, the command is this, accept one another. Okay? Which doesn't simply mean tolerate. It doesn't mean, simply mean put up with each other. The word it connotates welcoming that person into fellowship. And notice what Paul says. Accept the one, welcome that one in who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. That is, don't invite him to come in the door so that you can beat him up. Don't, don't let him come in the door so that you can marshal all your arguments against him and prove that he is wrong and that you are right and then slide the meat across the table and make him eat. Okay, that's not what it means to accept. Welcome into full fellowship. On the other hand, he says, do not regard with contempt. This is the temptation of the stronger Christian to look down upon the weaker Christian and say, if you were really matured, then you would be able to partake. Rather than accepting that person exactly where they are, maybe not understanding all of their history and background and all of the the, the issues of conscience that play into their decision, accept them. Don't look down upon them. And third, don't judge. You who cannot partake, who are from a stricter religious background, don't look at those who are partaking, partaking and saying, if you were more spiritual, you would stop that. Because you're focusing upon issues that are not, in fact, black and white moral issues. Look at chapter 14, verse 17. Paul writes, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Okay? Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I hope you hear in that verse echoes of Jesus' teaching because Jesus constantly faced the judgmental person. I mean, the, the person like the Pharisee who looked at Jesus' behavior and said, this man is, he's a sinner. Look at what he's doing. First of all, his disciples walk into a meal and they don't even wash their hands the way we tell them to wash hands. You know, a particular amount of water and letting it drip down and then you dry. And they don't wash like we wash, right? And when Jesus knew he was interacting with these people, he didn't say to his disciples, whoa, hey, hey, hold on a second. Quick, wash your hands so we don't make the Pharisees mad. He said, eat up. Don't worry about it. And when the Pharisees walked in and they saw him eating with tax collectors and prostitutes and they're whispering Behind the breath, Jesus doesn't disassociate himself. He says, you know, your problem is you're a hypocrite. Because you think what's most important is washing the outside of the bowl, and I'm concerned with the inside of the bowl, genuine righteousness. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's righteousness. It's peace. It's joy. It's these fundamental things. So, as he says in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, Don't kill, I say don't even hate. But forgive and love even your enemies because that's what God is like. That's kingdom righteousness, right? That's kingdom righteousness. And so Paul says to us, accept one another, don't regard one another with contempt, and certainly don't judge one another. Why not? Very simply, 
Because God's our judge. God is our judge. We are not the judge for one another. Read with me chapter 14, verse 3. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. Why? Because God has accepted him. Okay? He says, accept one another because God has accepted you. And on what basis has God accepted you? On the basis of the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. Not what's on your menu. Not what you're eating on any particular day. God has accepted you in Jesus Christ because the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Second, God is our judge and not one another. We are not responsible to judge one another. Verse 4. And who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for God is able to make him stand. He stands or falls to his own master. God says, I will make him stand. In these matters of conscience, I will speak through my spirit directly to him, and I will lead him to the proper conviction. And thus I will evaluate him. And you are not responsible to evaluate because you cannot evaluate. And Paul gives uh, several statements that illustrate why we are unable to actually evaluate one another. Verse 5. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. In other words, if you are participating or you are abstaining from a particular activity, is your conscience clear? I don't know, and I can't know. I don't know your conscience, and I can't know your conscience. That's a matter between you and God, so I can't judge you. If you're abstaining or you're participating in a particular matter, are you doing it for the Lord? Are you doing it to honor God with your life? I don't know. And I can't know because I can't know your conscience. If you are abstaining or participating in a particular non-moral issue, a neutral issue, are you doing it with thanksgiving in your heart? I don't know. And so I can't judge you, and you can't judge me, because I don't know your heart. Only God knows your heart, and only God knows my heart on these issues that are not moral issues. Now, I want to make the point, though. Paul is, again, he's talking about morally neutral matters. He's not talking about issues of sin. On issues of sin, believers, we are called to judge one another. I want you to think about that for a second. I remember when I was doing college ministry, this is a big hang-up for students a lot of times. We, we would talk about this, and they say, you know, we can't judge others. We can never judge others. I go, really? Really? Let, let's talk about categories of issues. In terms of your conscience, I cannot judge you. On non-moral issues of conscience, I, I don't know. I don't know what's inside of you. God does. But in terms of sin, within the body of Christ, you know, we are actually commanded to judge one another. Let me illustrate for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul speaking, he says, For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Remember in the context, it's about a young man who has now taken his dad's wife away from him and he's living with his stepmother. Paul finds out about it and he goes, "Uh uh-uh. He said, let me speak 
clearly into your church. I've judged him. That is, I have said and declared, and I'm saying it publicly, that's sin. He goes on. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? In other words, look, sinners sin. They're not believers yet. So I'm, let's, let's just set that category aside. Let's talk about us. Let's talk about our family. Let's talk about what's going on inside of our household. Do you not judge those who are within the church? He's exhorting the church in Corinth to judge themselves. They're a matter of issues in the Corinthian church in which they are, are participating in sin, in immoral activity. They're coming to the Lord's Supper uh, and they're drunk or they're gluttonous. And he says, that's sin, clearly sin. Stop it. And if there are some who won't stop it, then you actually need to remove them from your fellowship. You need to make an evaluation. Now, this is just bonus. This is just an aside. Remember, because this is what Paul's talking about in Romans 14. I'm just going there because what I have discovered in the church, especially as churches get larger, is that there is no accountability within the body of Christ. Okay? That's a gift to us, people. We need one another to watch one another's lives, to speak into one another's lives so we can say, you know, I see something in your life and that doesn't look right. Let's look at the word and let's look at your life and confront one another. It says in Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. We need friends who will wound us. We need friends who will wound us. We need friends who will come to us directly and say, that's sin and that needs to stop. And that is a function of of the the loving body of Christ for one another. So if you do not have that kind of relationship within the body of Christ, you must find it. It's a barrier. It's a protection. It's a guard from sin. That's why God gives us to one another. So get plugged into an adult Bible fellowship or a home church group or a prayer study. Do something where where you open yourself up to that kind of accountability. I remember I started this process when I was actually in high school. First time I had Christian friends, I moved to College Station, Texas. And these, these Christian guys, they had never experienced fellowship before. We came together and it was just a, a God moment. And we began to grow together and we realized we need this from one another. We, we give permission to speak into one another's lives. And I've always had that since that point in time. I always had it from my parents, but you know, it's just not the same. Right? Now you're out and you're on your own. It doesn't matter if you're 20 or 70. We still battle with the flesh. We still battle with the world. We still battle with sin. We need to speak to one another. Now, that's not what Paul's talking about. It's just what I wanted to talk about. Okay? So let's get back to what Paul's talking about for a minute. Okay? Third, God is our judge because we belong to him. Okay? Don't judge one another because God is our judge and we belong to him. Verse 7, chapter 14, verse 7. For not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. We belong to God. That's why we're accountable to God, because he purchased us with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, people. God so loved the world that he gave his son to remove your debt of sin. Barrier removed. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you belong to God. You're part of his family. That gift is absolutely free. But with that gift comes accountability to God because he doesn't want us to stay as we are. He wants us to grow and change and mature. 
So, fourth, God is the one who will reveal all things. Some sinful behavior becomes very obvious. There are some matters of conscience that no one else can see, but someday God will pull all of that out. So we don't have to. It says in 1 Corinthians 4, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose even the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. It's the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, Only believers are there, but all believers are there. And we stand before God and his servant Jesus Christ, and Jesus evaluates not just our actions, our deeds, but even the motives of our heart. And so it's critical that as believers in Christ, we're constantly letting the Spirit speak into our conscience, our motives. Not just the things that are black and white, but even these areas that are morally neutral. Now, second command, Paul says, don't trip up, but build up. Read me chapter 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Uh, What does it mean to stumble? It does not mean that I simply see another Christian doing something I don't like, and so I judge him. That's not what it means to stumble. Paul illustrates what it means to stumble really clearly in 1 Corinthians 8. He says this, uh, But take care that this liberty of yours, so you have a freedom, It's a non-moral issue. It's a matter of conscience. And you, he says, you have freedom or liberty. Be careful this liberty does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak, the one who does not have liberty. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, that is, knowledge that there are no other gods but God, and he sees you dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? That is, he doesn't have freedom. He can't really grasp fully the implication of this knowledge that there are no faults, there are no real gods other than God. And so he goes ahead and he eats, even though he doesn't have freedom of conscience, and thereby he sins. You have made him to stumble. That's what it means to cause to stumble. Now read with me chapter 14, verse 14. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, To him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is spoken, what is for you a good thing, be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. Indeed, all things are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense or causes to stumble. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. Two principles I want to draw out from this section. First is this. We live in a new era. Okay, this is a new era. Paul says, I know and I'm convinced that nothing is unclean. Because Jesus Christ has come and established a new covenant, 
He has set aside the old. No no sacrifices need to be made any longer because there's one full final sacrifice made in Jesus Christ. The ceremonial laws and the sacrificial laws, the laws of washing and so forth, they're set aside. They were given to Israel to show Israel uh, as a nation distinct, set apart, but they don't apply to you any longer since you are a new family of God from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That barrier of the dividing wall, which is the law, which kept you separate, that enormous cultural and religious barrier, that has been knocked down, we're told in Ephesians chapters uh, 3 and 4. It's gone. Okay? So therefore, nothing is unclean any longer. Jesus said it like this in Mark chapter 7. He said, do you not understand? He's speaking to his, to his disciples. He said, do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but it goes into his stomach, and then it's eliminated. Thus, Jesus declared... All food's clean. Then Peter had a vision in Acts about sheet coming down. Rise, kill, eat, Peter. You know, go ahead, eat the shrimp, eat the the lobster. It's actually pretty good. Try it. Right? It's not unclean any longer. Paul, First Corinthians fifteen, argues we don't have to keep the law any longer. Okay, that's that's just a fact. We live in a new era in which Jew and Gentile can come together as one family of God and can worship together. However, we're still obligated to love. And this is the driving principle. We're still obligated to love. And our behavior needs to be controlled not by what we want to do, but by what honors God and what is best for others. So he says, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. Why? Because as Jesus said, this is the way that all people know you're my disciples. You love one another. If you think less of yourself and more of them. I want you to turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13. Paul says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Would you sacrifice all of your rights on matters of conscience, just for the good of others. Chapter 9, verse 19. says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being under the law myself, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may, may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Wow, what an amazing statement. Paul says, if I'm with the Jews... I don't eat pork. If I'm with the Gentiles, I say, give me another slab of bacon, man. Thank you. So that bacon doesn't become the issue. And we can talk about the gospel. See, Paul says, I don't want to make brothers in Christ stumble. Because if my behavior causes them to sin, then I have sinned. But I also modify my behavior for the sake of those who don't know Jesus Christ. Because nothing's more important than that they know Jesus Christ. And so I'll sacrifice all of my rights. I'll live as the weak or I'll live as the strong. I'll live as a Jew or I'll live as a Gentile because really it doesn't matter to me at all. What matters is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so I sacrificed for them. Chapter 10, he goes on. Verse 23, all things are lawful. Remember, he's not talking about sin. Okay? Talking about non-moral, neutral issues, matters of conscience. These things are all lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the market, meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I don't mean your own conscience, but the other man's conscience. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. That's a beautiful example of how to live. Let me give you one illustration. Let's get all on the same page for just a moment. When the Bible speaks of alcohol, there's one very clear command. Don't get drunk. Don't get drunk. Do not get drunk with wine. Paul says that's dissipation, or you know, we don't use that word very often. That means reckless living. You're out of control. So God's spirit is not in control of you. Your mind is not in control of you. So don't get drunk. The Bible never says don't drink. In fact, at the Lord's Supper, there was wine. It wasn't grape juice. It was fermented, intentionally fermented to take out impurities. Okay, so they, they drank wine. Uh, how much alcoholic content? I don't care. <laughs> I have no idea and it doesn't matter. Point is, it was wine. They drank wine. They, Jews drank wine with most meals. The biblical issue is don't get drunk. As I said last week, if you're under 21, don't drink because that's the law of our land. Okay, those are very clear. But if you're over 21, there is freedom to drink but not to get drunk. So let me give you a scenario. Imagine I sit down at a meal with a friend of mine and I order a glass of wine. Perhaps he's a stronger brother. And he sees me order wine, and he has freedom to order wine as well, and so he orders one glass of wine. We have one glass of wine. We're not drunk. Everything's fine. Perhaps he's a stronger brother, and he says, you know, I just choose not to drink a glass of wine. We're all good. Perhaps he's a judgmental brother, and he sees me order a glass of wine, and he says, sinner, and he's sitting there the whole meal just, oh, man, you know, if Brian were just more righteous, man, i got to tell the elders about this. You know, and he's judging, 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 judging. Okay, or perhaps he's uh, a vulnerable brother. In his history, in his background, maybe there was some alcoholism, and he sees me drink, and it just it brings back memories and it hurts. Or maybe he's a weaker brother. He sees me take a drink, and he goes, "Well, I guess if it's okay for Brian, then maybe it's okay for me too." I'm not sure, but he orders, he drinks, he violates his own conscience, he goes home feeling guilty. Or perhaps he's a weaker brother and he's not sure, but he thinks he could, but he sits there wrestling and battling the whole time. And he's tempted. And I've put him in a situation where he's tempted. 
Maybe he's battled with alcohol a long time. Maybe he's even an alcoholic, but also a stronger brother. He knows it's okay for me, but it's not okay for him. And I put him in a situation, again, where he's tempted, where he might even violate his own conscience. He might sin. The point is this. I sit down at that meal. If I don't know where that person stands on this issue, then I say no. I don't have to exercise my freedom. On each and every one of these non-moral issues, maturity says, I don't have to, but I'm going to make my decision based on what's best for you, not what I want to do for myself. Paul spends a chapter and a half out of a much broader section talking about the unity of the body of Christ. Why? Because the way that we treat one another in these issues displays the righteousness of God to the world. We show people this is what God is like. Notice how he wraps up this whole section. Chapter 15, verse 1. He gives us an example. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. Why? Well, because even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever is written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures we might have hope. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to the example of Jesus Christ that we have just mentioned. So that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Let's get to the heart of the matter. And stop worrying about these superficial issues. Therefore love one another. Let me give you three applications before we go. First, are your standards of righteousness personal or biblical? Sometimes we're with our own standards of righteousness so long and they've been running around in our own minds so long that they get really solidified and we think, man, that's, that's black and white. That's the gospel. That's truth. You, you really probably need to be able to point to chapter and verse in context properly interpreted to say this is actually a biblical mandate. Or is it cultural? Is it personal? Is it something you were raised with? If it's something personal or cultural, are you judging people? based on something that's not biblical, well, you need to back up and think about that. Second, are you exercising your freedoms in love? If your conscience is clear, are you saying yes to a particular behavior because you're concerned about others? Because ultimately, why we are here, why God has not taken us home to be with Jesus, is so that we'd love one another in such a way, people would watch our relationships, and they would be drawn to Jesus Christ Not one of us lives to himself. Not one of us dies to himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, this reminder that we do not exist for ourselves. We exist to bring honor and glory to you in everything that we do. I pray that we would have courage to examine our consciences and uh, to, to listen to the voice of your spirit. I pray, Father, that we would give grace to one another. I pray, Father, that we would clearly see issues that that are black and white and we would develop relationships in which we can speak into one another's lives. But on the matters that are, are, are of conscience, 
I pray that we would um, learn not to judge or to be condescending, but instead to accept one another in love and to sacrifice our rights to one another in love so that people can see Jesus through us. It's in his powerful, precious, sacrificial name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.